Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time to be together. And Lord, we thank you for the word. Lord, how exciting it is for us as a, a group of expectant believers to come and just sit, listen, hear from you, Lord, allow you to speak to our hearts. Lord, for us to observe an event that took place some 2,000 years ago, but Lord, for it to impact our hearts as if it happened to us just five minutes ago. And Lord, we know that that is because your word is true and alive. And Lord, it is able to cut down to the deepest places of our hearts, Lord. And so, Father, once again, we ask that you would do that. Lord, that the things, the cares of this world, the stuff we got to deal with when we get out of here today, the stuff that's ahead of us for the week ahead, Lord, all those things, just for an hour or so, would pass aside and we'd be able to come and sit in your presence and hear from you. So minister to our hearts, draw us into your presence, teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 9. So you can go ahead and start turning there in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 9. We are moving verse by verse through this whole book of Matthew, and we're looking at Jesus. We're, in, in some respects, many of us that maybe we've known Jesus for many years, we are kind of trying to look at him again for the first time and in a fresh way and, and hopefully falling in love with him again. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been looking through the book of Matthew on my own and together with us now as we're, we're digging into it and just th- reminding myself of these things and just thinking, this guy's amazing, this Jesus fella uh, that we love and worship. And so it's been good to consider that in a fresh way. Today we're going to look at Jesus' healing of a man that was paralyzed. Your Bible might say at the top, uh, a paralytic. Jesus heals a paralytic. And we're going to look at him and four faithful friends that brought this man to Jesus. Obviously, the guy, unable to move on his own, was dependent, it seems, on these four friends. And we don't know if he asked the four friends to bring him to Jesus or the four friends said, you know what, man, you need Jesus, and we're bringing you to him. But one way or another, this guy gets to Jesus, and it's an account that makes a huge impact, it seems, on the early disciples. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all decide we're going to write and tell about that particular story. And that's rare in the Gospels where all three or four of the Gospels tell of the same account. And in this case, three of the four, they do write about this event. It's found for us in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. So let's take a look at it. I'll read the full passage. It says, Now getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, the very closing account of chapter 8 is of Jesus and his disciples going across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we, we looked at how there was a storm, how the storm swept them up, how they fought through that storm. They made it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they get there and they encounter two men that are possessed by demons, and how they heal those particular men, and then get back in the boat and go home. Now, we said that the plan of the community to deal with these two demon-possessed men was essentially to cast these men off. 
It was to bind them in chains, send them off to live amongst the tombs, you know, quiet neighbors, send them off, live amongst the tombs, and not bother the, the good people anymore, the real people anymore. That was their plan. But Jesus' plan was something different entirely. Jesus' plan was to go to seek them out, to find them, to heal them, and to put them back to their right mind so that they could be of service to the community that was around them and they could be healed as opposed to being cast off by that community. Now notice verse 1, what it says in our passage, and getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So as we begin chapter, our study of chapter 9 today, really verse 1 might better fit with the last verse of chapter 8, because it's really the conclusion to that story. He gets in the boat, goes all the way over there, finds two men, gets back in the boat, and goes home. And he comes home, as I mentioned to you, he crosses over a sea of about 8 to 10 miles in distance. It's a storm-swept sea. They survive a terrifying storm that even fishermen, experienced fishermen, think that they're going to die in the midst of this particular storm. And then they get there and they find two men, heal them, and leave. They do all of this for two men. That seems to me a lot to go through for so, such little return, so to speak, on your investment. But it's not such a little return for the Lord. I ask this question, how much are, is a soul worth to you? And we see the answer to that question in our study of chapter 8. These two souls were worth all of that trouble to Jesus. This morning we have a prime example of how much a soul is worth to a group of men. Obviously souls are worth a lot to Jesus. But are they worth a lot to you and to regular people? And today we see an example of a man's soul that is worth a whole lot to two people, even to the point where a group of friends are about to do the ridiculous in order to see their friend healed. Now, as I previously mentioned to you, the account that we have that I read this morning, it's also found in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. The Matthew account is actually the most basic gist of the story. Just the facts, ma'am. It just kind of lays it out there. This is what happened. There was a guy, he was healed, he went on his way, and you know, so on and so forth. That's sort of the, the basics. Mark and Luke digs in a little, gives us some details, significant details, and so we're going to look at some of them. Let's discover, this is what we know from Matthew. First, Jesus returns to Capernaum. We leave, read that in verse 1. A paralyzed man is brought to him. We read that in verse 2. Jesus pronounces the sins of that man are forgiven, and that upsets the religious leaders. That's verse 3. And then Jesus proves the reality of that statement by healing the man of his paralysis. Again, that's where he says, what's easier for me to say, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? But I'll show you that I can forgive sins. Get up and walk, he says to the guy. And then the last thing we learn from Matthew is that the crowds that are in attendance, that they glorify God for the miracle that occurs before their eyes. That's what we learn from Matthew. Now let me draw your attention to a couple of verses in the books of Mark and Luke because I think these are important details. The first one we learn from the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 2. It says, And many were gathered together so that there was no room, no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So we learn there that the crowd that this guy is brought to is a crowd that is gathered to receive the teaching of the word from Jesus. And we also learn that the place is packed. 
You couldn't fit another guy in the room, not even at the door. Somebody couldn't even just squeeze in a little bit and listen there. That's the first thing that we learned that Mark doesn't tell, or excuse me, Matthew doesn't tell us. The second thing that we learned from Luke is that among those that are gathered there to receive the word, it says, among the many that were gathered are Pharisees and teachers of the law. This is Luke 5.17. It says, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. All right, so the place is packed, but it's packed with religious leaders. And we don't know the intention of the religious leaders, if they're coming because they want to learn what this new rabbi has to say, or if they're coming to kind of check out this new rabbi. We don't necessarily know that, but we do know that they're there. And that's another thing to add. The third thing, it's a minor detail, no big deal, but this is in Mark chapter 2, verse 4. It says, when these four friends could not get near enough to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let their friend down on the bed on which the paralytic had lay. That's just a minor detail that Matthew forgets. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Because there was no room, these guys climbed up on the roof, dug a hole in someone's roof, and lowered their, their friend down in the middle of Jesus' Bible study. I forgot to add that, but that's kind of significant. Now, again, I asked the question, how much is a soul worth to you? We see how much it is worth to these friends. They, In their mind, they're saying, our friend needs healing, and nothing is going to stop us from bringing him to the healer. I suspect each of us in this room, we know people that need at least spiritual healing. And we want to see them experience that spiritual healing. But how much are you willing to do to see that they experience spiritual healing? You know, so for many of us, we stop at the point of, yeah, I know they need healing, but if I ask them if they want to come to church with me, they might be a little offended or embarrassed. And I don't want to offend or embarrass them. That's as far as we're willing to go. For some of us, it may be, you know what, they may not like me anymore. And I don't want to risk losing my relationship with him. That's as far as we're willing to go. These guys are willing to go pretty far to do whatever it takes to see their friend healed. Now, an interesting thing occurs when they get this man to Jesus. Returning back to Matthew, look at verse 2. It says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Notice, Jesus saw their faith, the four men, and he spoke to the man and said that he was healed. Now, we have to ask the question, how do you see somebody's faith? You know, a person's faith is on the inside. I can't see your faith. Well, actually, you can see a person's faith pretty easily. This here, I don't think it's speaking of some supernatural observation that Jesus, because he's God, has the ability to determine he can see into their hearts or something like that. I think it's a reference back to the fact that they climbed up on the roof, dug a hole, lowered the guy down there in front of them. He saw their faith in action. These guys, they believe so strongly that Jesus is the only hope for this man that they put their faith into action by going to such a great and, quite frankly, a little bit of a ridiculous length to get the man to Jesus. So how can another person see what another person believes by the action that person takes in response to their beliefs. So you say that you trust God to provide, but then you freak out when the funds don't seem to be there to meet your needs. Do you really trust God to provide? You see what I'm saying? You say that you believe the power of the gospel to forgive, 
but then you write off this person or that person as too far gone and someone that would never believe. Do you really believe then that God could save anyone? If you're going to write off people that seem to you to be too far off to believe. My point is this, your actions demonstrate your belief. And these four men, they demonstrate that they have great faith. They have the type of faith willing to go to any length to see Jesus do what they know that Jesus can do. So they go up on top of someone's roof, a stranger's roof. They dig a hole in that roof. They interrupt Jesus' Bible study, Jesus' Bible study. You know how good a Bible study that must have been? And they go and they interrupt that Bible study, and they drop their friend down in the midst of the study, and they say to Jesus, there you go, do your thing. Imagine their surprise then when Jesus says to the man, probably with a smile on his face, I don't think he's offended, I don't think he's bothered, I think he's excited about their faith. And here comes this guy, dropped down in the middle, and everyone's backing away and dirt all over them from the roof and, and all this sort of stuff. And there's Jesus with a smile on his face, and he says to the guy, your sins are forgiven. Now, I can't help but thinking the guys up on the roof looking down through the hole are thinking, not his sins. We brought him to you to heal his legs. What are you doing? You know, and here's Jesus. He heals his sin. Now, some have drawn the conclusion that since Jesus mentioned sin in the context of the man's physical ailment, that the two must be linked together. And that, that certainly may be. As a matter of fact, tradition for hundreds and thousands, yeah, almost a couple thousand years now, tradition is that the situation that is going on in this man's life is somehow related to the man's past sins. So an example, for instance, would be that the man went out, he got drunk, he fell down, he injured himself, and since there was no way to kind of get him healing for his broken legs or whatever it may be, he one way or another developed sort of uh, this paralysis or whatever, experiencing the consequences of his sin. That would be sort of a random example of, of how the two could be connected. But we can't say for certain whether that is or is not the case. We, we just don't know. The passage, it doesn't tell us. We know this. All ailments, all sicknesses, all illnesses can be traced back to the first sin committed. And that is that we live in a fallen world. Now, that does not mean, however, that the specific thing that you're going through or sickness or whatever it may be is necessarily because of personal sin in your life. So all sickness is connected back to sin, but not necessarily personal sin going on in your particular life. With that being said, that doesn't mean that some of our ailments and some of our difficulties and predicaments can't tr be traced back to sin in, my, in our lives. Am I making sense here? It makes sense on paper to me. Hopefully it makes sense as I'm explaining to you. Either way, as the great physician, which is what Jesus is called, Jesus knows what this man really needs. And so certainly this guy would benefit from feeling physical healing. But at best, that healing would only be temporal, and at some point in time or another, some malady would come this guy's way that would develop, which would eventually take his life at some point in time or another. Something was going to bring him to the end of his days. The man's friends saw his physical problem. But Jesus instead sees his eternal spiritual problem. And so while this man needs physical healing, what he ultimately needs is a spiritual healing. And he's not the only one. And that's why I think that the three gospel writers are quick to point out 
other people that are in, te- in attendance at this meeting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all point out that Pharisees, scribes, and teachers of the law are present at this Bible study. And again, it's possible they may have come because, you know, God was stirring on their hearts and they heard this Jesus guy, and boy, he's a rabbi like no other. I want to go and I want to listen. That may be why they came. Or what I think is a little more likely They gathered from every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem to sort of check this guy out and to make sure this guy is one of us and to make sure he can continue to go on doing what he is doing, teaching the things that he is teaching. So imagine here they are, the religious leaders, sitting there, and to their surprise, Jesus says to this man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Actually, we don't need to imagine what they're thinking because the passage tells us, look at verse 3. We read it, but let's read it again. It says, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming because he said to them, "Your Your sins are forgiven. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to say that to you. I've said to people, they come, they ask for prayer or whatever, and to turn to them and say, look, your sins are forgiven. Many of us, we grew up in Christianity where, you know, you're, you're talking to a person or whatever, and they're struggling over their sin, but you know that they've been to that place where they've confessed their sins, but they're just broken over, they're struggling over it, and maybe you said to them, or someone said to you, look, man, God has washed away your sins. Your sins have been forgiven. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and we would go, you know, before lunch once a week, and we would confess our sins before the pastor and the pastor or the priest would say to us, go, my son, say five of these and tens of those, your sins are forgiven. And you would do that. And so it doesn't seem like a big deal for us to hear one man saying to another man, your sins are forgiven. But it is a big deal. And the religious leaders, they demonstrate to us that it is so. They immediately know the significance of Jesus' statement. Notice they accuse Jesus Or in verse 3, they say, this man is blaspheming. Mark chapter 2, Luke chapter 5, they add these words, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the religious leaders are both right and wrong. They are right in the fact that it is true that only God can forgive sins. They are wrong in claiming that Jesus is blaspheming. They don't understand yet who Jesus is. And in their mind, Jesus is not God, so he's unable to forgive sins, and thus he must be blaspheming. Now, Jesus can get into an argument with them, and he can say, M2, or not M2. He can have one of those things back and forth. Or Jesus could simply show them his power, which is what he chooses to do, probably what you should choose to do in life as well. Not get into an argument over with things, trying to prove this point or that point, but just go out and show people and let them see it in that regard. And so Jesus chooses the latter. He's going to show them. He confronts them. He says in verse 4 and 5 of Matthew, why do you think evil in your hearts? He knows what they're thinking. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Well, certainly both of those are just as easy to say. Anybody could say anything they want to say. But you're taking a little more risk to say, get up and walk, than to say, your sins are forgiven. Because I don't know if your sins are forgiven, if that really happened in your heart. How do I know? I'm just sitting here watching the situation as well. But when you take the step and say, get up and walk, now there's going to be a show. And there's going to be proof in 10 seconds as to whether or not you have the power to do the things that you say you are going to do. So it's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can really know. 
But to tell this guy to get up and walk, now that's going to be something. And so then answering his own question, look at verse 6. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man rose, and he went home. Well, I guess that settles it. Jesus is God, right? Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. We can shut the rest of the book. But the reality here is this. It may settle it in our minds. I suspect it settled it in the heart of this man that was paralyzed here. But we learn in the scripture it doesn't settle it in the hearts and the minds of the religious leaders. And they go on continuing to disbelieve. A little bit later on, they will say something to the effect of, you have power by the prince of Satan or something. You cast out demons by Satan. That doesn't even make any sense. It's like, what are you talking about? Or whatever. But they just refuse to believe. And so unfortunate, it's unfortunate for so many of them that they did refuse to believe. Now, I want to look at the encounter of Jesus with this man. It's very brief. It probably could have taken five minutes. It probably took longer to dig a hole in the roof than for Jesus to do the thing that he was going to do here in this encounter. But Jesus says four things to this guy in their interactions. The first thing is from chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus says, behold, some people, or it says, behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The first thing Jesus says to this man, he refers to him as my son. Now, I remember when I was at, uh, in high school, and I was on the soccer team, and then there was the football team, the Neanderthals. And the football players over there, I'm sorry, I know that we have a football. He's mad at me. Look at him <laughs> over there. But, you know, the whole football vibe was just not something I was interested in. I didn't want some guy grabbing me by the helmet, yelling at me, calling me this and that, and, and I just wasn't interested. I wanted to play a gentlemanly sport like soccer <laughs> or something like that. Well, anyhow, during that particular process, I, I remember hearing coaches yell, son, get over here, son. What are you doing, son? Everyone's son or whatever. That's not what Jesus is saying here. I don't want to be called son by you, sir. You're scary. I don't want you to be my dad if you're going to scream at me with that tone of voice or whatever. That's not the way that Jesus uses the word at all. So it's not just some like kind of, hey, son, get over here. It's a term, it's a Greek word, it's a specific one. It's a term that expresses endearment. It's a Greek word which means it's designed to be used when you want to be soft and tender and inviting. And so in that way, Jesus says to this guy, he kind of breaks down all walls, all barriers here, and he calls the guy's son in a way that is welcoming and loving and kind and tender to this man. The second thing Jesus says to the man he says also in verse 2, it's actually really the first thing, he says to him, take heart. Now other versions, they say, be of good cheer, or be of good courage. And when I hear be of good cheer, I, I sort of feel like Jesus is saying to the guy, cheer up, pal. All your problems are going to be solved today. But that, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's really saying to the man is something to the effect of, have no fear. But even that, you can take two different ways. So it could be taken this way. Look, I know you're scared to death, but find courage in you and face your fears, son. You know, it could be taken that particular way, but that's not how Jesus means it to be taken as well. There's a Greek word that is used here. It's the word tarseo, and it, it means this. There is no longer anything for you to fear. So in a very endearing way, he calls him son, 
And then he says to him, you don't have anything to be afraid of anymore. Now that's speaking to something, because now we're digging into what's really going on here in the healing of this man, not just his physical body, but the thing that is going on in his heart. We don't know what is causing this man to be fearful. It could be as simple as he's in front of 50, 60 people, and that would scare a lot of people with everyone's eyes focused on you. It could be as simple as that. It could be the fact that he was strapped to a mat and lowered down through a a hole in the roof, and he was afraid he was going to fall on his head and die or something, and he could be fearful of that. That would cause me to be fearful. Or it may be something else altogether that's causing him to be afraid. And I think it's tied into the fact, this is what I think it is, that it's tied into Jesus' opening statement to him where he says, you no longer have anything to be fearful of because notice what he says there, because your sins are forgiven. You see, I think there's a connection between the two. And that it was the man's sin brought into the presence of holiness which was causing him to be fearful. I can't say it for certain, but I think it's very reasonable that being in Jesus' presence has exposed his sin, even without a word that Jesus has said, but that he's come into God's presence and his sin was exposed. When I was coming to know Jesus, I don't know the day that I came to know the Lord. Some of you do. You went forward at this thing or that thing, and you could point back to the actual day. But I was sort of coming around the church, and I was going to youth group, and I was sitting in Bible studies, and I was learning more and more and more. And in the process of that, I came to know the Lord. And I I know I know him now. I can tell you that. But I, I don't know when I actually came to know him. But in that particular process, I was hearing lots of things. I was having lots of Bible studies. And I remember about a year of time went on as I was learning all these things, hearing all of these things, acknowledging all these things in my head. But it was about a year into this whole process that finally, without a word, Jesus changed my heart. And I don't know if that's when I was born again, but I do know that's when I was filled with God's Holy Spirit. And I was completely different from that day on. And God did a work in my heart without a word. And I think that's what's going on with this guy. He comes in to God's presence, and that's causing this man to be fearful. And Jesus sees this as a golden opportunity to address his primary reason for coming here on the earth, which is healing men's souls, not just their physical ailments. I I pointed out to you that Whenever it seemed that the population wanted to make Jesus sort of the healing ministry of the day, that Jesus picks up shop and gets out of there. Because Jesus didn't come to be the healing ministry of the day. He came to heal men's souls, not just their physical bodies. This circumstance, it provides Jesus the opportunity to convey that which truly sets the Christian faith apart from any other religious system that may exist. And what truly sets the Christian faith apart from any other religious system is the taking away or the removal of man's sins. That's the distinct message of the Christian faith, the announcement of the possibility of having our sins forgiven. Islam cannot take a man's sins away. Buddhism doesn't take a man's sins away. Hinduism, even Judaism doesn't take a man's sins away. They can speak of covering your sin or working in such a way to supersede your sin, but none of those religions, or any religion for that matter, can take away sins. 
But Jesus here says, your sins are taken away, your sins are forgiven. And he goes on and he adds, and that's the distinct message of the Christian faith. And that's why there's hope in the Christian faith. Because though we are sinners, we can have hope that we can come into the presence of a holy God. And no other religion can really give you that guaranteed hope as Christianity can and the the Christian faith can. So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, take up your bed and go. Jesus eventually did exactly what these friends had brought the man to Jesus to do. But as one never to miss an opportunity for a lesson, Jesus says, essentially in his actions, he says, first things first. He says, let's get to the real heart of the matter. He says, let's deal with the man's real problem, his problem of sin. I thought about entitling this message, what's your problem? Just to kind of press your buttons a little bit here. You are, as a matter of fact. No. And my hope, though, in, in thinking of it in that particular way is that each of us would be forced to consider the real problem that each of us are facing. You see, often we see the symptoms of the problem without getting to the root of the problem. And so we pray that God would change our kids so that we wouldn't be so angry all the time when the root of the problem is really not our kids. It's what's going on in our hearts. You see where I'm going with this? Do you want some more examples to feel bad about yourself? (laughs) There are external things that need to be dealt with, but it's almost always, without exception, it can be boiled down to a root problem that's existing in the heart of people. And we certainly, we know that's the case with salvation, but it's also the case with sanctification. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, salvation is sort of the starting point. Sanctification is the growing point in our walks with the Lord. Now you hear this and you say, all right, you convinced me. How do I discover the root of my problem? Well, that's a good question. You guys are a good group of people (laughs) asking imaginary questions in the way you are. You, You get to the root of the problem the same way this man did. You come into the presence of Jesus. Now some of you hear that and you say, great, next time he's in town, I'll go down to his, and I'll squeeze into the room. I'll even put a hole in the roof, and I'll get there. Now you're getting sarcastic. All right, you got a little bit of an attitude here. But I know what you're really asking in my imaginary world. What you're really asking is this. How do I come into Jesus' presence in this day? Presence in this day. And the answer is very, very simple. And some people think, that's too simple. But it's really this simple. You come into his presence through the word, through prayer, and through fellowship. Now you hear that and you're like, come on, it's got to be something harder, something more difficult, something more challenging, some book I have to go buy, some place I have to go. Maybe it's a trip to Israel. Maybe if I go to Israel, then I'll come into God's presence because God floats around Israel or something like that. And that's not it. And you're going to probably be let down if you go to Israel thinking you're going to find God's presence there. You, You probably will, but not because you're in the land of Israel. You'll find his presence because you're in the word and you're in prayer. And you're in fellowship. And we do that 30 times during the 10 days. And you're on the bus and you're talking to people about things you're learning. And you're fellowship and you're interacting with people. And you're thinking, God is here. And let me tell you, friends, you do that here and God is here. You agree? It's that simple. Through the word, prayer, and fellowship. You come into his presence with humility and you ask him to reveal his will to you. 
You ask him to expose, as you come in prayer, areas of sin in your lives, area where your old man, the Bible calls that your flesh, is seeking to reign. You gather together with other believers, other believers that also want to know the will of God and are seeking the will of God in the same way that you are, and just start listening. And listen to what the Lord might be saying during that time of gathering, because no doubt he'll begin to confirm some of the things that you have already been thinking or feeling. That's how you come into his presence and how God can do a healing work. Now, there's one last verse. Look at verse 8, last verse that we're going to consider today. It says, Now when the crowd saw this, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, the final point that I want to make is to take notice of the response of the crowd that has observed this miracle and the interaction that went on. First thing we notice again in verse 8 is that they were afraid. Some versions, King James says that they marveled. Other versions, NIV says that they were filled with awe. And those, a combination of those words is the idea of what is trying to be conveyed here. Those that are gathered, they marvel at the awesome display that just went on in front of them. And notice also it says in verse 8 that they glorified God. That's very significant, really significant, and it's a pattern for us. As we seek to minister into people's lives, whether it's as a church, as a minister or something like that, as a follower of Christ, as we seek to minister into people's lives, this is a pattern for each of us. When you serve others, I'll ask this question, and remember the word minister means serve, So when you minister to others, when you serve others, who gets the glory? When you serve others, who gets the glory? Do you walk out of there and people are like, man, that Sally, she is such a sweet, wonderful person. And you're hoping she throws it on Facebook. Sally came to visit and is a sweet, wonderful person. Who gets the glory? I mentioned this a while back when we were considering false prophets, but I think it bears repeating. If a minister or ministry is drawing attention to itself, you should be concerned. If you walk away more in all of the minister or the ministry than you are in all of God, that's a problem. And so here's Jesus. And if anyone deserved to be glorified, it's Jesus. And yet the one that gets the glory in this encounter is his Father in heaven. That's the proper way to minister, to serve God in such a way that God is the one that is glorified. And we we may hear that and we're like, well, of course we do that. Do we? Do we? I've found myself guilty of trying to, even though I, I say it, I don't mean to, either glorify Greg or glorify Calvary Chapel, Mercer County, so that when we're done an event or we're done an activity or we're done a visit, people will say, boy, Calvary Chapel, Mercer County, I should think about going there. Glorifying something else other than Jesus, other than the Father. We need to be very, very careful with it. And I think we can deceive ourselves, and we need to be careful that we don't. So there's three things that we consider today. The first is this, and I think all of them are valid lessons. You can build a whole sermon on it. Three things. The first is this, the great lengths that this man's friends go to bring him to Jesus. And again, the question I asked a few times now is this, how much is a person's soul worth to you? What are you willing to do to see your friends come to the Lord? 
The second one is this. I ask the question, what's your problem? It's easy for us to get caught up in the symptoms rather than digging to the heart of the problem. And so make sure you dig to the heart of the problem as you seek the Lord's will in your life. And then finally, the, the point of who gets the glory. Is it allowing God to work through your life in such a way that people don't even notice you, remember that you were even there, and that God gets the glory? Would you allow the Lord to search your heart on those things? A couple of things to take with you to think about. Cool. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. And I, I do thank you. It's challenging, but it's also very refreshing and comforting to consider, Lord, just how good and kind you are. Lord, even to consider Lord, when that hole was being dug in the roof and your Bible study was interrupted and I suspect dust falling all over on your head and all these things. And rather than you getting sort of frustrated or bothered by it, Lord, that you embraced it, you were excited about the opportunity, Lord, to do a eternal healing in this man's life and Lord even if that meant confronting some of those that had been gathered in the room Lord you were willing to do that because they needed to be confronted Lord they needed to uh, they need salvation as well and so they have to come face to face with who you are and who you're claiming to be and so Father here we are a couple thousand years later sitting here considering these words. And Lord, I do pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you'd take these words and cause life to be born. Lord, that you'd search out the deep places of our heart. Lord, you challenge us really where we need to be challenged. Maybe it's on how far we'd go to see another come to Christ. Lord, perhaps it's the fact that we minister in such a way that people see us instead of you. But maybe we've been mistaken and we've been just looking at man's external, our own external, and not letting you get down to the deep, deep places. Or whatever it may be, Lord, we ask that you would use your word this morning. Teach us. And leave us here, Lord, changed. Lord, not even just sort of nodding our head in agreement, but changed, Lord. Continue to speak to us, Lord, as we sing, we pray. Lord, we close out our public time together.